Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Thirsty Thursday live stream from 7 until 9 weekly. Here's your host, Tim Hill. We're obviously coming live from the Hill Manor tonight, uh, just in case you, you didn't know. Um, and we've got all these guys in breakout rooms because they've all apparated in. <laughs> so this is tonight's, uh, the one we've all been waiting for. This is the one we postponed um, from the demise of uh, Dearly to Love Queen. Um, so this is it now. Next week, um, I'm just waiting for the guys to come back to me, but um, hopefully it's going to come off. And if it does, that'll fall across to the following week as well, the 20th. Uh, and it'll, it'll be to do with PTSD. I'll give you a little bit of a tip there. To do with PTSD and animals. Another little project I'm working on for the 27th of October. And then we come to the 3rd of November. I've got some fighter pilots coming in. I'm trying to get hold of a, a couple of UK fighter pilots as well. Uh, and we're going to be looking at uh, uh, what they do and how they do it and uh, how they protect their mental health. You can also buy me a coffee. I don't mind. You can buy me a coffee anytime you like. So, without too much further ado, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring all the guys back in, and this is your opportunity now to, to ask some questions. So, if you've got a question, put a cue in front of it, and uh, any question, and we can be able to pick them out, and we'll do our best to answer your questions. So, without too much further ado, Lo, you're back in the room. Hello. <laughs> Sam, you're in. Ed, you're in. Rachel, Hello. you're in. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for coming back. Can everybody hear everybody? Yeah. Sam, yeah. your mic's muted. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> so, uh, do we have questions? Let's have a look. I'm happy to answer the one on the screen. Yep, why you go? So, uh, from metal detecting war relic, do you believe it's right to remove skeletons from burial sites and then for them to sit in a box in a museum store? And why are they not reburied? It's not true that all skeletons are not reburied. I ran an excavation in central London where we excavated a Victorian cemetery, and once we've finished the publication, those those human remains will be being reburied um, because they will have no scientific value or purpose for us we will have learned everything we think we reasonably can and we know that they had christian burial rights so they will be being reburied in a christian settlement in a christian cemetery um where the rest of the cemetery which was literally machined out in the 1960s was buried or possibly buried if they weren't cremated but we know we know where this where they were supposed to have been taken in the 60s um but with regards to reburying of human remains from prehistoric contexts, we don't know their burial rites. We don't know their beliefs and we shouldn't force on them our belief systems. And one thing that we have learnt recently is how rapidly science can advance and can 
still keep telling us. And I remember going around with one of our um, osteoarchaeologists and um, going through our stores and taking out uh, human remains that have been excavated in the 1980s because we can now look at their ancient DNA. And this is a new technique. And we are now starting to be able to tell things that we'd only hypothesized. So if we had two people buried together, um, say a woman and a child, we can now tell whether they've got familial relationships, whereas before we could only hypothesize. And we don't know where science will take us in the future. So I can understand why, you know, people get upset and why sometimes you see museum stores and some of them can look like the scene at the end of Indiana Jones where you've got big warehouses filled with boxes. They're not all filled with human remains. There's a lot of Roman CBM in some of those boxes. Um, but, you know, it is it is um, um, a difficult subject. But when we do excavate human remains, it's something that we do with great respect, with great dignity. And it's generally only done as a last resort. Um, it costs a lot for developers to have cemeteries excavated. And if they can change their development plans and put the playing field above the cemetery, most of them will because it will save them hundreds of thousands of pounds. So it's, yeah, it is it is part of the job. It's part of the job that, um, but it's, it's part of the job that we do very carefully, very respectfully, and we are very aware that it is an important part of the job because these our are everybody's ancestors and we learn about our past and human remains are as close as literally as close as we're ever going to get to people from the past i saw that you guys had done um a dig up in um up near salisbury somewhere i think it was um and you, you found an archer Amesbury yeah, Amesbury that's him and uh, yeah. you could tell he was an archer by the, the shape of his yeah. body um, and, and his bone structure, because one side was sort of uh, yeah. built up more than the other. Um, yeah, has... the artefacts that were with him as well. Hmm. And what, so... was, what was particularly nice about the Amesbury Archer, we also learned that he'd have had a limp and uh, he'd have probably been cared for by those around him. And I think it's easy to, because we're only left with the physical facts of people from the past, when we can find people who are very old we had um a site in somerset where we had a very very elderly woman um she was in her 70s she had uh arthritis she'd have been really bent double but she'd clearly been cared for by the people around her and the amesbury archer was the same he couldn't have hunted he had a limp so people were looking after him and i think that that aspect that people did care for each other is really important because it's easy to think of people in the past as being stupid or uh uncreative but we know that they were they had intelligence they had creativity they had feelings mm -hmm. uh, which makes them even more like us so how much has modern technology come into archaeology nowadays uh, the new sort of scanning equipment to, to scan the ground um, what new tools are available to you guys when you come onto a site? How how deep can you go with with sort of a, a, a ground ray or an X ray of the ground? 
who wants to go with that? <laughs> I guess that's gonna, I guess that one's coming my way again. <laughs> um, the geophysical survey equipment we've used has really the improvement has been on the number of sensors and the um, use of the cart systems. So where I did six months in geophysics, where we walked everything at 1.6 meters a second all day long in very straight lines, whereas now they are attached to a cart which has GPS attached to it. So the, the accuracy of the survey data is the collections much faster because you're getting, I think normally they have a minimum of six sensors on a cart system that they push around or can attach behind a quad bike and it's attached to a GPS. So the survey data they're collecting is much more accurately geolocated than it was in back in my day, 10 years ago. Um, it's the, the how deep does it go? It doesn't really have a depth because what it's looking for is changes in soil properties. And if you have a massive ferrous object, um, if the farmer has buried a tractor straight underneath the plough soil, um, it's going to blot out everything else. Whereas if you have something that is sort of fairly clean from modern artefacts and modern impairments and you have ditches on there and then the way the soil has gone in the ditch ever so slightly differently to the surrounding soil can be picked up by it on an average on a good site you're looking at sort of half a meter so you'll look through the topsoil and the plow soil um, beyond that you would need something like ground penetrating radar and again there are all sorts of constraints with that and that's not widely used in a commercial sense because it's very expensive. And do you use um, uh, uh, drones a lot? I mean, because for an aerial view gives yeah. a, a really good picture of, of indentations and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, even if a, a field's been ploughed for donkey's years, mm. um, how does that look? And, and do you use any particular type? Do you use sort of infrared or anything uh, for searching, uh, for surveying? Can we can we talk about lidar? I think it's really cool, but I don't. Yeah, lidar is cool. I don't know. I don't know the technical stuff about it, but I know it can see through trees. Lidar, what's that? Yeah. It's uh, it's a, it's um, sort of lasers attached to planes. And it's most of it's freely available online, isn't it? I think you can find yeah. the lidar sur surveys if, online. If you have if you have an iPhone thirteen or fourteen, they've got it built in as well. So it's a way of perceiving depth. Some of us can't afford those. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I've only played with I've only played with them, but it's apparently it, it's a way of perceiving depth. So it's um, it, it determines ranges over a variable distance by targeting mm -hmm. an object or a surface with a laser. Then it measures the time it takes that light to get back. So it's like a, an echo sounder on a boat. Tim, you'd know about that. Um, but it, it, it can compile that data to create a 3D representation of the surface. Um, but it's useful for us because it can penetrate foliage. So if you've got a heavily wooded area or a grassy hillside, if you LIDAR scan it, you'll it will bypass all the foliage and you'll only see the shapes of the ground underneath. Um, so it's really, it's like aerial photos, but on another level. 
I will Amazing. just pitch in there as well, just to combine marine, obviously. Um, so we use multi-beam echo sounders as well. So really similar to what Rachel said with the geophysics and really similar to what Sam just said with penetrating um, radar through trees and things. The same for a multi-beam. We kind of send echoes down into the seabed and the, dis the time it takes for that... Um, to hit the seabed or whatever is on the seabed and come back to the boat. That's how we measure the depth. So based on the depth, we can tell if there's an obstruction on the seabed. So it'll show as a shallower area and it actually maps it really nicely. So you can actually see the outline of a wreck or something. Um, so yeah, we, we also use those sorts of techniques in the marine field as well. Wow. So on the marine side of it then, um, I guess you guys are fairly busy with um, all the new wind farms mm -hmm. that, are, that are being put out around the, around the coasts. Yep. So how involved are you guys um, looking at surveying that and how do you go about surveying that? So it's really similar, actually, to how Rachel described um, planning for a normal terrestrial site. So we're also a part of the planning on the marine side. Um, so the developers are granted a license um, by the marine organization. So they'll be given a license and basically an area of seabed um, that they can develop on. So we're a part of the planning along with a whole host of other people. So you've got things like marine mammals, uh, fisheries, birds, um, people who deal with noise, people who deal with the boats coming in and off the surface because um, they won't be allowed in certain designated areas either. So there's a whole raft of people that are involved uh, in the planning stages of, of an offshore wind farm. Um, we're heavily involved. So like I said, we will get the map of the area uh, with each individual turbine kind of plotted really accurately um, and obviously where the cable comes. So every wind farm will have a big cable extending from the wind farm down to the landfall where the, the energy comes in into the land um, to be processed somewhere else. So we also look at that cable corridor to make sure there's no wrecks there um, because they'll be dredging that area to make sure they can lay the cable. Um, so we're really, really heavily involved in that process. Uh, we we can scan the seabed um, most because we've got a marine geophysics team as well, which is obviously very similar to geophysics on land, just they do it from boats. So we do have our own geophysics team that can actually go out on a boat and survey the area of seabed if needed. Most of the time, the clients already have that data, so they'll pass it on to us so that our marine geophysicists, geophysicists can actually look at that data and tell the marine archaeologists what's in the area. Um, so based on what's in the area, they'll give it an archaeological designation. So it'll either be an A1, which is a definite wreck of archaeological importance, an A2, where it's not quite certain, but possibly a wreck, and then an A3, which is just a magnetic anomaly. It's probably just something modern, like a bit of anchor or a cable um, that's not of archaeological significance. So they'll designate them based on how significant they think they are. And then we'll then put exclusion zones around them. So an exclusion zone is just a big buffer or a big circle around the object. Um, how big it is will depend on the size of, of the wreck or the object in question. And it just means that developers can't go into that exclusion zone. They can't cross over it. Boats can't go over it on the surface even, um, just in case they drag any nets or fishing gear or anchors or anything over it. Um, so we protect the underwater heritage where it is in place. We never really move it. It's very, very rare that it would be moved or lifted, um, mostly because of cost. Um, but if we can leave it where it is and protect it in place, then that's definitely the, the first choice. Um, that's what we call mitigation. So as soon as they're... Um, 
as soon as they're designated, they can kind of rejig their wind farm uh, to make sure they're still getting the right number of turbines that they want in that area, but they're not damaging any archaeology. And similarly, people like the marine mammals will be telling them, no, you can't put the wind farm here because of this habitat. So they, they have to comply with all these different people um, to kind of make sure that they're sticking you know, to all the rules that they've got around them. That's amazing. I mean, the, I mean, wind farms are popping up all around the coast at the moment, and um, the the amount of, I guess, the amount of work that you guys have to do to to, to clear the way for for them to put these in, it's like the 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 cable that came across from the uh, from France into yep. Daedalus. Yeah, did, the, did the you IFA guys too. have anything to do with it? Yeah, we did. Yeah, so. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah quite a lot i think we had the terrestrial side of that as well did we rachel yes we did yeah okay so we had the marine and the terrestrial side there that one is actually a really interesting one um because like i just said it's very rare that archaeology on the seabed will be moved that one was actually an exception which was amazing and i got to be a part of it so the reason why is because when these cables come through they have to be in a straight line. They don't want any bends. They don't really want any um, angles in the cable. They don't really want to avoid something. Even if it's in a square straight shape, they would rather the cable just be pinned straight the whole way. Um, and apparently that's because of swelling. So when the cable heats up, um, they don't want it, that it can't cope with swelling if it's kind of curving around a bend. So it's, it's easier um, for the cable to be straight and all the curves are on land where they can actually access it. Because obviously if there's a curve under the sea, 50 meters deep, you don't really want to be sending people down to have a look at it. Um, so they'll keep it as pin straight as possible. Now, during the survey, things um, came up, they weren't too bad. Uh, and then they got about 50 meters offshore um in the southampton or solon area and came across a wreck of a fairy barracuda aircraft uh which was obviously a huge problem because it was right in the way of their pin straight cable and actually national grid paid the money to lift it so it's so unusual for us to be involved in anything like that because normally a developer will just go around it and in this case they said we can't go around it we we basically need to go straight through where it's lying um so i was on the boat when they first dived that we saw the merlin rolls royce engine for the first time in I can't remember. I think it's 1943. That one is it, Sam? I can't remember. 41. Um, so saw it for the first time in a long time. That had taken off from Daedalus, like you just said, Tim. Um, and the pilot luckily had got out. He'd kicked his boots off and swam ashore. We actually found those boots um, when we lifted the aircraft. Everything was lifted uh, piece by piece. You can't lift an aircraft like that in its entirety. It's much too fragile and much too big. Um, so it was lifted piece by piece with divers on the seabed. Uh, brought onto the deck of the boat, recorded, photographed, and it was actually donated to the Fleet Air Arm Museum by National Grid um, with help from us who are actually restoring a fairy barracuda. So they're trying to build a fairy barracuda from different bits of other fairy barracuda aircrafts because there actually isn't one in existence anymore. So for most of their project, they've been using uh, mountain aircraft crash sites because obviously it's a lot easier to get to than the ones under the sea. Um, so this is the first marine one they'd encountered. Uh, they were actually over the moon because the bits of this one were actually in better condition than the ones off the mountains. It had suffered a lot less damage. And actually, with cleaning in a power blaster machine like they have at the Fleet Arrow Museum, the, the pieces came up almost brand new. Um, so they were really, really happy with it. Um, and they've got a great website and a great Facebook page. If anyone's interested in that sort of aviation, they've got the restoration page up there. And it's it's really interesting to follow and to see what they're doing with it. 
Wow, terrific. So are there any other... Oh, hang on, we've got questions coming in here. What's that one saying? Uh, Missing from the Spanish Civil War. Yes, we do Um, use magnetometry. And you uh, use magnetometry in a marine, don't you? Do you as well, though? Uh, yeah, yeah, the, we do, the, yeah, the vast majority of geophysical survey is is magnetometer survey. Yeah. What is magnetometry? <laughs> now you're going to test what I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're two sensors, and they're looking for the different magnetic signals. So you find somewhere quiet to balance the machine with north, south, east, and west so that it has a, a zero on a quiet area. And then the gradiometers that are the, is what the machine is called, and the sensors will be picking up. And when the soil goes back into the ground differently, if you hit obviously metal objects, um, that will give a slightly different reading. So the, the, more sh- the more nuanced things that we're looking for, so things like ditches, will have a, a little plus or a little minus above the zero. And if there's no archaeological features, then there should be it should stay on zero if you've balanced the machine correctly. Um, and then when you find a lump of iron, it'll obviously have much bigger, we call them dipolar anomalies, so big black and white blobs um, and services and things like that will come out. And then you slowly, it's a bit like a magic eye puzzle, you come up with a grayscale picture. Um, and if you understand what you're looking at, you can start to see features. If you've got proper archaeology there, you'll see the features. The ditches are normally the first thing people spot. Um, you'll have seen back in the day on Time Team, they used to have very, very um, rough and ready um, <laughs> compared to the modern ones. But now we have these beautiful grayscales that literally if everything gets scanned and the, the variations in the, in the magnetic properties of the soil are what shows you where where the anomalies are and then the skill is then interpreting those anomalies to understand whether they're archaeological or um, natural so tree throw holes and things like that can can leave very similar anomalies mm. it's a bit of a nightmare for us in a marine context because as you can imagine anything that's dumped at sea tends to be metallic so it will pick yes. something up <laughs> so we'll get a ping and there'll be hundreds of pings on a map and 95 percent of them are not archaeological um so yeah can, can be a bit of a nightmare that one and do i do i recall correctly um in case i've made this up but i'm sure i do remember and uh, that magnetometry doesn't detect non-ferrous metals so there were issues with aluminium pieces of ordnance in portsmouth harbour because magnetometry wouldn't detect something that was aluminium yeah it does yeah it's not not yeah it doesn't pick up non-ferrous because when I first did it, I remember going, oh, God, I have to take my engagement ring off or wedding ring off. But no, gold, <laughs> gold's not, not. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah. Oh, and they always used to, you had to take your bra off because your bra straps are done. You know, that's actually a myth. Don't find that, ladies. <laughs> Any ladies watching it, if you ever volunteer and they tell you you've got to take your bra off, they're lying to you. I mean, if it's a proper big underwire, but it's basically that isn't part of the stable environment. But yeah, it's, it is. You, 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 don't put your car keys in your pocket after lunch because then you've got to redo all your work. I've made low laughs. Yeah, I went. I once did a survey, and the person was wearing a metal coat on the other end of it, and you could yeah. see every single time I walked near them, this little yeah. halo around every time they walked <laughs> near me. Yeah, just in every single grid. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got to redo them all. 
Surprisingly number of wellies have got metal in them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, metal metal insoles in the wellies. So you have to go out and buy, make sure that you've got non-metallic boots. The ceramic mm. safety boots are very good for that sort of thing. Yeah, and also hope that a uh, council hasn't spread green waste on your site. Yes. Green recycled waste often has metal in it. Oh no. <laughs> There you go, Ed. You can fill the rest of these. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even do that anymore. Not allowed out. You, you'll have done it more recently than me. <laughs> so, um, there's there's some, some archaeological work going on at the moment over on South Sea, um, where they're um, re or replacing the sea defences or yep. improving the sea defences. Yeah. And I know there's a, a group of archaeologists. That are working along there in, in, with them. Now, the other side of the harbour here, along the the seawall at Fieldhouse, is also in need of some repairs. And the last time I sailed past it, um, you can see, I think where where they did the dredging for the, the carriers and took out yeah. Hamilton Bank. Um, I think, from my limited knowledge. Um, Hamilton Bank is reforming, but it's taking a lot of stuff from um, sort of Fieldhouse and um, just around the corner in Stokes Bay, bringing it back around to reform um, Hamilton Bank. But it's undermining the, the seawall along there. Is that a fact or is that, um, is that just a bit of a myth? So the uh, South Sea Coastal Defence Scheme... Um, yeah. is designed to protect all of old Portsmouth from flooding. It's mostly to do with rising sea levels. Uh, it's an interesting project because um, part, various parts of the South Coast have a managed retreat plan in action, but Portsmouth is the most densely populated uh, area in England, I believe. Um, so it, it's not practical or pragmatic to kind of let any aspect of it go. And if people know the area, they'll know that South Sea Common is quite commonly flooded. Mm. Um the current sea defences are very much at the end of their lifespan. They're mostly Napoleonic. Um, our role in that has been to uh, do so something is recording the built heritage. So people often think of archaeology as being under the ground or under the sea. But actually, we do a lot of work with built heritage, um, which is things that are still there. Extant is the word that the archaeologists use. And so we've done a lot of 3D photography. We've made 3D models of the original um, sea defences. We've made um, lots of plans, lots of drawings, because those current sea defences that Portsmouth's quite famous for are going to be, uh, well, encased in a new sea wall. So they'll never be seen again. And it's been a really interesting project. It's the first time in, I think, in history or in recent history that a, a scheduled, um, uh, a scheduled, structure has been changed in this way so for us to work on it's been quite an honor um, and yeah because they're getting rid of they're not well the, the original sea defenses will be there but they'll never be seen again so it's important we have a complete record of them yeah that's the uh, wow. sea defenses in a nutshell yeah we, yeah we have also been going out monitoring where they've been drilling boreholes or digging test pits because i remember going out pre-covid or early in covid um i remember going out there and, and monitoring some some test pits where they are where they have been excavating holes and i know colleagues from the field work department are out there there's a lot of boreholes being 
being drilled and so they're monitoring all the deposits that come out from those as well so there is a, a terrestrial as well as the built heritage side to to all the work we're doing at the coastal defense scheme yeah i'm one mm. of i'm one of those people that then looks at that stuff in the boreholes <laughs> yeah. so, we, we, dra we drag it out and bring it yeah. back and then edit yeah, it's, um, it. so there's often um in those sort of intertidal environments we get peat deposits yeah. preserved which are sort of these organic sediments and they they're, they're wonderful they preserve so much evidence about what the past environment looked like so we can get pollen from them we can get actual plant remains sometimes lumps of wood very rare we get actual like a genuine piece of archaeology in strict sense but um yeah, yeah so many coastal defense schemes going on around the minute there's a lot of these sort of organic sediments around coastal areas being looked at and also flood alleviation schemes around rivers is, is very similar. So we're looking in Somerset, and Dungeness, all over the place with these. Wow. So uh, coming back to the, to this side, uh, the sort of Portsmouth, uh, the Gosport side of Portsmouth Harbour, um, is there anything earmarked to, to replace the, the defences along there? But I think most of those have been done, haven't they, in, in recent years? Uh, what is it? So it, say that again. Sorry, Tim. The defences along um, Fort, uh, Fort Blockhouse, for instance, yeah. they, they they had to um, fill a big hole in that, that fell down. Um, but if you look a little bit further along, they, they, you can see where it's been undermining it. And then just around the corner in um, Stokes Bay, some of the uh, the walkway there has been fenced off uh, and they've had to replace it because that was being undermined as well. Um, I don't know whether you guys are involved with that side of stuff. So there was a collapse earlier in, uh, well, back in January 2021. Um, and it was interesting because it appeared to show further bits of um, much, much earlier um, bits of the sea defences dating from about 1750. So that was the west spur of the redoubt, um, which hadn't been seen before. So that will be reburied under the gravel that's going to surround all that area from Fort Blockhouse around South Sea. But that that the Solent is hazardous in that for that movement of gravel. And uh, we saw that uh, a couple of years ago at Hearst Castle, which is mm. at the western end of the Solent, which is another project our built heritage team have been involved with, where the wall of Hearst Castle spectacularly collapsed. And just because of the gravel being pushed away from underneath it. So as well as fighting, you know, sea level rises and storms and weather were, as you said earlier, the movement of the gravel itself can cause lots of problems. And coming, bring it back to the South Sea defences, that's another part of the defences. You'll see that they're being dug down much deeper um, than the current defence system is. So they should be more immune to the movement of gravel. Hmm. Hopefully, uh, it will do the job and won't uh, won't flood old Portsmouth. Always, uh, be a bit of a drama if it does. And um, is is that? I, I saw something the other day that they they think that the the polar ice cap, the the northern one, is in, instead of reducing, is is growing again. Um, I don't know whether you guys have seen that at all. I think it was on the news report a little while ago, or a couple oh, of weeks ago. It's ice, Tim. If it's not mud or water, we don't know anything about it. <laughs> <We> do <not. laughs> 
Well, I don't know, you might find <laughs> a woolly mammoth. <laughs> well, we get those anyway. We do get those anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah we had one from uh, Horton. So mm. Horton's a quarry up near uh, Gap, uh, near Heathrow. We had one in a oh. paleo channel up there. It's we get them all the they time, Rachel. Sorry. Yeah, but they're offshore. <laughs> you know, at least at least this was at least this was on dry. It was on dry Local. land by the time we found it. Local, well, yeah. Yeah, it was up near Heathrow in a big paleo channel. That's cool. Um, I think I saw a question about Waterloo uncovered. Yeah, I'll just just, just notice that one. So. That's oh, a great project. Yeah. Um, yeah, really yeah, fantastic. Fantastic project. So it's very similar to the uh, Breaking Ground Heritage project. Um, and Phil Harding uh, from... Uh, Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil Harding. Everyone recognises him from some little TV show called Time Team, but to us, he's just Phil with the shorts in the office down the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so he, he's very involved with Waterloo Uncovered. Um, and he goes out there every year. Which is yeah, it's great. And but as I say, it's very similar to for those of you who don't know about Waterloo Uncovered. Um, it's a charity that combines archaeology and again with veteran care and veteran recovery. Um, so very similar to the UK's Breaking Ground Heritage. And there is a lot of um, synergies between the staff who support those projects. Yeah, it's really good. Mm. Yeah, I think I think they also when they, when they take veterans out, they're, they're filming it as well. Yeah, they're, I mean they're, they're making a program of it because uh, they're digging up parts of the battlefield, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and they're quite keen. A lot of the breaking ground heritage and, and Operation Nightingale sort of sites that we do, um, they're always quite keen to to create some sort of record. And then when digging for Britain want a mm. want a nice site, they've generally got sort of quite nice archaeology. I noticed uh, Flowers Barrow, which is one where we assisted earlier this year, was in current archaeology when it dropped on my doormat this morning. <laughs> so it's, yeah, we, we do occasionally provide the sort of uh, specialist expertise to go out and help. But they, these are very much projects that are run by veterans and for veterans. And we're there in a professional capacity to, to make sure that the work that they're doing is done to a higher standard and that we can teach them and train them but it's done at their pace and and in under their terms then they're not projects being excavated under planning conditions so like mm. i said earlier they're, they're essentially they're volunteer projects but all the feedback has always been that they're really excellent for veterans mental health and well-being um, and that's something that you know we're always very keen as a company to support and part of our sort of um outreach remit is, is is as sam was saying earlier is you know encouraging improved mental health and well-being and we do amongst our staff as well we've got um employee assistance programs and mental health first aiders and mental health champions to try and um because yeah, rolling around in the mud for a for a living is is not at all ever <laughs> testing and living out of bags in various B&Bs. So, yeah, it's something that as a company we take very seriously and we're always quite keen to work on projects that are promoting that, that kind of work. Mm. Mm. I will add Exercise so, Tiger in there as well. Sorry, Tim. Yeah. Um, but again, that's a marine can, one. Can um, we just come back to that in a minute, yeah. though? Yeah, I'm, of course. I'm just talking a promotion i'm just going to do a quick promotion the reason i'm doing a quick promotion is so we can we can drop this down into into smaller chunks so mm -hmm. people don't have to watch the whole two hours in one go they can watch the, the highlights as it were why would they um, not want two hours of us <laughs> the low light lowery lights <laughs> <laughs> 
the Tim Heal Thirsty Thursday live stream from 7 until 9 weekly. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.